The Grinch hated Christmas the whole Christmas season. Now, please don't ask why. No one quite knows the reason. It could be perhaps that his shoes were too tight. It could be his head wasn't screwed on just right. But I think that the most likely reason of all may have been that his heart was two sizes too small. But whatever the reason his heart or his shoes, he stood there on Christmas Eve, hating the Who's. Staring down from his cave with a sour, grinchy frown at the warm, lighted windows below in their town. For he knew every Who down in Whoville beneath was busy now, hanging a Hollywood wreath. And they're hanging their stockings, he snarled with a sneer. Tomorrow is Christmas. It's practically here. Then he growled with his Grinch fingers, nervously drumming. I must find some way to keep Christmas from coming. All right. So this morning... And the reason why I showed you that clip outside of the fact that who doesn't love the Grinch story, right? Is because we're going to talk about the villain of Christmas. I call him the villain. The real-life Grinch who hated Christmas and tried his best to stop it. His name is King Herod. And I call him the villain. So, but here's the thing. And here's the one truth statement I want to give to you today. Is that this is perfectly encapsulated in the story of Herod. Is that nobody can stop God's plan. Nobody can stop God's plan. For just such a time as this, when it was seen uh, in the right time, at the right moment, according to the plan of God, when Jesus would come in flesh, we call that the incarnation, when the Christ child was to be born, at the right time, nothing nor nobody was going to stop the plan of God that God had instituted way back before the foundations of the world. Sin did not take God by surprise. In Genesis 3, we get this kind of uh, pre-announcement of this seed that is going to come from woman, that is going to crush the head of the serpent, which is like the first announcement of the gospel way back in Genesis chapter 3, that we see this starting to come to fruition in God's plan as Christ is born. And ain't no human being going to stop that plan. And aren't you happy today that you have a Savior who not only came to live on purpose, but to die for a purpose that you and I can experience eternal life? And that there is nobody who is going to stop that plan. So if you have your Bible and you want to open up, we're going to find ourselves in Matthew chapter 2 today. We're going to be kind of jumping around verses 1 to 23, like through the whole chapter, or most of the chapter. And what we're going to see this morning is we're going to see three different pictures, I want to call them, of Herod and his response to Christ that you and I should avoid. This is a negative example of a way that we should avoid, Okay. So the very first thing, looking at verse 1, kind of setting the stage for us, is we're going to talk about how Herod was a disturbed king. He was a disturbed king. Look at verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. They used to often, if you read the Bible, a lot of times it'll say that so-and-so is born in the time of this king. It gives us kind of a chronology to understand uh, a little bit of a timeline. Verse 2, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. So the announcement of the wise men. And then verse 3 says, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. 
You should underline that word. Some of your translations may say something different, but he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. So when Herod heard that the Magi, from the Magi, that a new king was born in the scriptures, it says that he was troubled, according to my translation. Some of your translations may say something like disturbed. I like that word better. And new, the New English translation uses the word disturbed. But what does the word troubled mean? It means that he was shaken up to his core. It means he was stirred up, he was agitated, and that he had some angst, basically. So this was not good news to Herod, and we're going to talk a little bit why this was not good news. The question then becomes, why was he so troubled at the announcement of the coming king of the Jews? Well, because Herod himself was king at this time, but he was not a rightful king. Herod was an Edomite. That means he was from the line of Esau. He was not a Jew. He had been made king, by the way, by the Romans. He was appointed kind of like a puppet king. He had some level of power, but he was appointed by the opposition. The opposition was the one who gave him his power. So he did not have rightful power as an heir to the Davidic throne over the Jews. So knowing that, he wanted to do whatever he could to be able to keep his power. And so when the Magi bring this announcement, it sounded suspiciously like the emergence of a genuine descendant from the line of David who had a right claim to the throne. And so that means Herod's on the outs. So job security is not going well for Herod at this point, and he wants to hold on to his job. He wants to hold it really tightly. He knew he was not the rightful king. He was more interested in saving his throne than saving his soul. He was more interested in saving his throne than he was saving his soul. Now, if you know anything about the Grinch story, then we know that the Grinch was troubled over the amount of joy and love and expression of the Who's, how they love to celebrate Christmas and all their singing and all the joy that they expressed. And his, he was agitated and he was annoyed. He was troubled by all of the expressions of the Who's. And here we see with Herod, as with any villain in a movie or story, a perceived threat to power results in dramatic consequences. Do you know that people like to protect power? We don't suffer for that in our culture today, do we at all? Nobody likes to hold on to power and do whatever they can to be able to skirt whatever level of authority or accountability so that they can hold on to the little bit of power that they have, right? Nobody's power hungry, right? So... Herod wants to do all that he can to be able to hold on to this power. And it results in some pretty dramatic steps that he's going to take. You likely know the story. But it's interesting how people will often do anything they can to protect their power. Here's a principle for you. Here's a principle for you and for me. Is that we are to relinquish power to the rightful king. We are to relinquish power to the rightful king. I don't know about you, but we need to wave the white flag of surrender to Jesus. When we talk about making Jesus Lord over your life or calling Jesus king, if we call Jesus king, that means he has a kingdom. That means he has subjects. You are a subject in his kingdom. But he's a benevolent ruler, but he's still a ruler, and you are still a subject. You are not him. You are not God. However, what we tend to do, myself included, is that we like to put ourselves on the throne of our own hearts. We like to, we, we're okay with giving Jesus access to some areas, but we don't like to give him access to every single area. We're okay with allowing Jesus to be king and ruler over certain areas, except when it becomes uncomfortable, when he's encroaching on what we consider to be our freedoms. 
When Jesus is telling us to change, then all of a sudden we don't want to throw up the white flag. But I am here to tell you that Scripture tells us that he who desires to hold on to his life will lose it. But he who gives up his life will truly find it. In Christ is life. That's where we find true life. In surrender. We will never find true life when we are trying to hold on to it. And we are trying to hold on to something that's so fleeting. This life and all that it entails. Wave the white flag of surrender to Jesus. That's what we mean when we say, make Jesus Lord of your life. Doesn't the scripture tell us that not our will would be done, but that his will would be done? We need to say like John the Baptist, like John the Baptist says, that I may decrease, that he may increase. Jesus doesn't want part of you. He wants all of you. He demands all of you. And he has the rightful claim to all of you. Last time I checked, you didn't put breath in your lungs. Last time I checked, you didn't make yourself. Us as created beings, we are subject to the creator. But thankfully, this creator brings us into a benevolent, loving type of relationship with him. Wave the white flag of surrender to Jesus. Give him everything, because he's worthy of it all. We sing about it, right? But is he truly worthy of it all? So we see, the first thing we see about Herod is that he's a disturbed king. He's troubled, because he does not want to relinquish power. The second thing we see about him, look at verse 4, is that he's deceitful. He's a deceitful king. Verse 4. And assembling all of the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. So Herod immediately goes into action once he has received this perceived threat to his power, and he tries to then locate where this king was born. He wants to know, get the inside information, okay? He wants to know where is this Christ born, now, Christ is a uh, Greek translation of a term, called, a term known as Messiah. And let's talk a little bit about what this term actually means. Because it's important. What does it mean when we talk about Messiah? Messiah comes from the Hebrew verb meaning to anoint. It is translated in Greek as Christ or the anointed one. Do you know that Jesus' actual name is not Jesus Christ? Christ is a title. Jesus is also identified properly by his name of Jesus of Nazareth, as people were always known from the location from which they came. So really, his human name is Jesus of Nazareth. When we say Jesus Christ, we are, Christ is a title. And it's significant to what that title actually means. So Christ means anointed one. In theory, it could refer to anyone anointed for specific service. However, this is a title given to Christ and accepted by Christ. And after his death and resurrection, the term becomes essentially synonymous with Jesus specifically. In the early Christian and Jewish tradition, Messiah was this king, was a royal figure who would play a crucial role in the last days. We see specifically prophecies in the Old Testament that refer to a coming Messiah that are fulfilled through Jesus Christ. The primary objection of Jews of old and now is that they are still looking for a Messiah and have not identified Jesus as such. But Jesus is this anointed figure, this Messiah, this ruler, this king who is coming. So Herod wants to know where is this Messiah to be born because he wants to exterminate the problem. Look at verse 6. And you, O Bethlehem, 
in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who would shepherd my people Israel. The answer to Herod's question was given way back when in the Old Testament by the prophet Micah. This is a direct quotation from Micah chapter 5 verse 2. And it's quoted here to tell us where the location of the Messiah was to be born. And those that Herod had gathered knew where he was to be born. So he is given that information. He's to be born in Bethlehem. Verse 7. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And when he had sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring word to me so that I might come too and worship him. I have good intentions. I promise. Tell him, bring news. I want to come bring him gifts, and I want to worship him. So Herod is the one who delivers the information directly to the Magi and then tries to find out from them when did that star actually appear so he can ascertain the time. Someone who is deceitful conceals the truth and the motivation behind their actions. Herod knew exactly what he was doing and he had a plan. He was manipulating the Magi to determine the exact location of the new king. It was a self-serving strategy. He wanted to serve his own, he wanted to save his own skin. Herod had no desire to worship the new king. His goal is to locate him, to exterminate him, because this budding hopefulness of this messianic hope that was, that was growing, he viewed it as potential competition to his throne. So he was going to do whatever he had to do, lie, cheat, swindle, in this case manipulate stargazers who could basically tell him the coordinates of the time so he could be able to locate this Christ child. Thankfully, he didn't have Google Maps, all right? He couldn't get a street view of Bethlehem. <laughs> Here's a principle for you. The true intentions of people will always be revealed. The true intentions of people will always be revealed. Maybe not immediately, but the truth always seems to find its way to come to light, does it not? People can only keep up a front or keep up a lie for so long. When people try to front and keep up a lie, there becomes a point where lies has to be compounded upon lies that you actually lose sight of the lie that you actually told. And then the truth is way back, steps and steps and steps behind, and then you find yourselves caught in a situation where you are just trying to scave your own skin. Herod's intentions were clearly going to be found out. Herod knew exactly what he was doing. Herod knew exactly what he had planned. He did not disclose his plan to the Magi, but he was trying to manipulate them for his purposes. Paul warns us of this in Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. Colossians chapter 2, verse 8 says this, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Deception is a very real reality. The unfortunate nature of our human fallenness is that at times we deceive one another. It's the reality. If I told you right now how many of you have ever told a lie, every single hand should go up, all to your liar. <laughs> Truth, right? So we have a tendency to deceive ourselves, especially when it's for our own purposes. Our own, sometimes I, I believe we don't even know, we don't even begin to understand. Let me say this, and this is very hard to say. I don't think we even begin to understand the depths 
of the possibility of what we can do with our sinful hearts. It's funny, being a Christian now, 20 plus years, it feels like, I feel like Shrek says, you know, like she says like ogres are like onions, I feel like Christians are like onions, right? You like peel it back and things come out of you that you don't even realize. It's like once God's worked on you and something else and all of a sudden something ugly comes to the surface, it comes out of you and you're like, man, you don't even recognize the depth of sinful behavior, thoughts, actions that are even possible within the human heart. Our heart is deceitfully wicked above all things, Scripture says. It really is. The Grinch, what was his means of deception? What did he do? Y'all can interact with me. What did the Grinch do? Y'all know the story. What did, he, what did he disguise? What was his deception? He disguised himself as Santa Claus. Right? So he disguised himself as Santa and then went around obviously stealing all the presents. Herod's means of deception was under the guise of wanting to worship the new king. Oh, yeah, I want to worship him. I want to praise him. Here's a question for you and me to ask to ourselves to be honest today. This Christmas, do you come to worship the king or do you have other motives? Do you come to worship the king or do you have other motives? Here's the last thing we see about Herod. He's destructive. He's a destructive king. Verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, as angelically, sovereignly, they do not go back the same route, he becomes furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in that region who were two years old or under, according to the time he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. Verse 18, a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. So as soon as Herod realized that the Magi were not returning, then he puts out this plan in action to unabashedly, with no remorse whatsoever, we get the picture, just co-heartedly, to murder all male children under the age of two. Now, just think about this for a moment. Sometimes we're disconnected by lots and lots of years from the scripture, and sometimes I think we tend to not humanize the reality of what's going on. But can you imagine as the scripture and the prophecy is said in Jeremiah, as quoted here, that Rachel, as a personification of Israel, talking about Rachel weeping for her children, can you imagine the wailing that was going on? Can you imagine the absolute tragedy and atrocity that is? To murder innocent children for the sake of preserving power that's not even yours? That's some gall. That takes a lot of gusto. That's a lot of pride. So Herod, after he ascertains this time, puts this, this plan, this heinous plan into action. It's arrogant. It's prideful. He was observant enough to recognize the truth of the Old Testament prophecies about God's plan, but he was arrogant enough to think that he could thwart God's plan. He understood. They came to him and they told him it was said of the prophets that he was born in Bethlehem of Judea. So he's listening to the counsel of what is to be, what has already been said and prophesied about Jesus. And yet he's arrogant enough to think he could thwart God's plan anyway. 
Remember I told you from the beginning, nobody can stop God's plan. Nobody. Not even a power-hungry king can stop God's plan. So what happens? An angel steps in and protects Jesus by providing the message to flee and in turn preserves the salvation that only could come through Christ. And where did Christ flee to? Egypt. Here's something that I've never really thought about until I was reading this story again this week. Where were the Israelites delivered from? And yet, here is Christ going back to Egypt as an exile into where the Israelites were exiled before, and then ultimately when he returns, he will come out of exile, out of that same exact place. Just like God brought the Israelites salvation, redeeming them from exile in Egypt, so he utilizes the Christ to then be the one to come out of exile to bring salvation again to Israel. Pretty crazy when you think about it. To actually make that connection. But the quote found in verse 18 about Rachel weeping for her children comes from Jeremiah 31:15. Jeremiah speaks of Rachel as weeping for her children as the Israelites went off into exile. As I said, Rachel symbolically as the mother of the nation, and relates this to the fact that the infant Jesus went into exile. Jeremiah's prophecy goes on to note, if you read Jeremiah 31, which we don't have time to read, in verse 17, it talks about the making of a new covenant that is going to result in relationship to this exile. Further, the Israelites did not return from all at once from exile. This points to the fact that the child Jesus would in due course come back from his exile in Egypt to provide salvation just like God provided salvation to them when they were exiled in Egypt previously. There's so many connections to the Exodus story and to the salvation that happens in Jesus. Not only from his birth, but then also we see this through ideas of the Red Sea. We see this through, their, uh, through the Passover lamb. Many different ways. There's lots of uh, types and images that relate to Jesus. But here's something that you may have not known historically about Herod. Herod was a, Herod was a monster. Historically, what we know about him from some extra-biblical sources is we know that Herod's crimes were many. It is historically known that he put to death several of his own children and some of his wives who he thought were plotting against him. So he wasn't just willing to kill children he didn't know. He killed his own family. Wasn't nothing coming between him and his power. So if you were to wrong this guy, if he even got a sniff or whiff of thinking that you were plotting against him, no judge, no jury. He was judge, jury, and executioner. He would have you put to death. Think about murder for a moment. Murder is such a grievous sin because it puts man in the place of God. At the end, this is the sin of Herod, that he was trying to play God in order to prevent God from taking his rightful place. Let me say that again. At the end of the day, this is the sin of Herod. He was trying to play God. And he was trying to play God by preventing God from taking his right place as Messiah King that he was, or that from the foundations of the world that he was to play that role. As the promise that was given to David that there would always be one from his line who would sit properly on the throne. And we know that Jesus is that Messiah King who fulfills his covenantal right as the king on the Davidic throne. And Herod was doing whatever he could do to try to prevent it. But thank God Christmas is not about murder, but Christmas is about life. 
The paranoia of a power-hungry king could not stop the plan of God, for the true king of kings was born. He was born, he reigns, he reigns as king, and he's coming back to establish his kingdom in full. You can't help when you think about the incarnation of Jesus coming in flesh. Jesus, I always say, came on purpose for a purpose. So he comes on purpose at the right time to be able to usher in in the beginning of his kingdom. And beginning to show who he is. To be able to provide salvation. To die upon a cross for our sins. To be buried and to raise again. But then to prepare a place that where he is we will also be. But that in time that kingdom will be fully inaugurated when the king comes to dwell with his people. And his kingdom will be fully established. The true king of kings is born. Just like the Grinch and Dr. Seuss could not steal Christmas. There was no way a power-hungry, greedy king... And his own power and his own maliciousness can ever stop the plan of God from coming. The king was born and the king is alive. He's alive. Let's summarize this for you. So our one true statement was that no one can stop God's plan. Herod couldn't stop it. The worst of people you can think of today or whatever institution you can think of, nobody can absolutely stop it. The king has come. There was one advent that has already taken place, but there is a second advent that is coming. And when that second advent comes, everybody, every knee will bow, every tongue confess that he is Lord. They will acknowledge him as king, as sons and daughters, or they will acknowledge him as king in judgment because they have forsaken what Christ has done for them. But regardless, the whole world will know who is king. There is no, there's no, uh, there's no hiding it. Because his plan has already been instituted. We saw that Herod was a disturbed king. And we learned from him that as Herod did not do, we should be willing to wave the white flag of surrender and relinquish all power in our lives to the only rightful king, Jesus, for him to take the right seat and place him on the throne of our hearts. We saw that Herod was a deceitful king and that truth will always come to light. We lastly saw that he was a destructive king, that his plan tries to come full circle with the murder of all these male children in a last-ditch effort to maintain and hold on to this power. But no man, and may, may I even go to the extent of saying, no enemy, not the devil himself, will ever stop God's plan from coming to pass. The devil thought he won at the cross until he saw that the grave was empty. Once that grave was empty, he realized that his ticket had been punched and that he could not secure the victory over God. So how can we put this in application today? I have one application for you, and this serves twofold. Is I would encourage you to surrender to the king. If you are here today and you are a believer, do not follow in the footsteps of Herod who wants to, who wants to hold on to his life. There are many areas of our life at times where we do not want to give up power and we do not want to surrender to Jesus. I know I am easily guilty of that. There are those sins that so easily derail us. We are the, there are those things that within, the, within our own hearts that we just don't want to give over. We don't want to relinquish. 
If you have placed your faith in Jesus, then you are serving a king who demands nothing else but total allegiance. And he demands total allegiance because he's asking you to give him what he gave you in the first place. All you're doing is returning a gift. Did you realize that's what you do when you worship? You did not give your own life, so when you give your life back to Jesus, you're returning that to him which is already his as an act of worship. So that's why he can demand everything from us. He demands total allegiance. We must decrease that he increases. Only you know those areas in your heart and in your life that God may continue to unearth and reveal where, you're, where it's really hard for you to relinquish control. And I'm telling you, let go of the perceived reality that you have control. Give it over to him. And if you are under the sound of my voice today and you have not placed your faith in Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, the Christmas season is about the birth of Jesus Christ who was born on purpose, for purpose, to die upon a cross for the sins of the world. The gospel is simply this, that mankind is sinful, meaning we have all fall short of God's perfect standard. The wages of our sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. As we give over our lives to him, as we trust him, as we believe that he paid the price for our sins, if we simply press our faith in Jesus, that he was buried, that he rose again to pay the price for our sins, we receive the gift of eternal life. We return to him that which is already his. We give him our life. So if that's you today, I pray that you would not walk out of this building without taking that step. And that you would give us an opportunity to pray with you. Because we love to be able to pray with you. That you may receive the gift of what this season is all about. The incarnation is God's gift to humanity. It's God extending out his hand and saying, I am here. I have come. I want to be in relationship with you. Let me save you and to redeem you and to pay the price for your sin. That's what the incarnation is all about. I'm going to ask the prayer team to come forward, and I'm going to pray real quick, and then we're going to worship. Receiving Christ is the greatest gift that we could ever receive. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to be able to open your word today. We see through the story of Herod, somebody who wanted to stop the plan of God from coming forward. But thank you, Jesus, that you came at the right time. You came at the right place, that your plan was never going to be thwarted, that divine providence redirected you to go to Egypt for a while, to be in exile, then to return to exile, to inaugurate your ministry here on earth, that you may become the savior of the world. I think that nothing catches you off guard, and that today, you are alive and you are well. And that nobody, no human, no divine principality, not even Satan himself can stop your plan. I thank you that you are still saving souls today. And I thank you that we had one advent, but I thank you that a second advent is coming. The king is coming. That you will return in glory and in magnificent power one day. And I pray that all of us, under the sound of my voice today, will be bowing our knee to you as children in worship and reverence to who you are. So, Lord, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' most precious and holy name, amen. 
I'm going to invite you to stand if you so desire. We're going to go ahead and take an opportunity to worship. You know, every Sunday we give the opportunity for you if you need prayer. This is one of the ways that we love one another and we are in community with one another is sometimes we need prayer for stuff, whatever it may be. One of these prayer partners would love to be able to pray with you. So please give us the opportunity to be able to do that today. Anytime during the song, just come forward and we'd love to have the opportunity to pray with you. Let's go ahead and worship. <clears throat> God sent his son They called him Jesus He came to love To heal and forgive He lived and died To face to 
ahead and be seated real quick. If you are a first-time guest here at Firewheel, we're really glad that you decided to worship with us today. We know that there are many places you can choose to worship, but we believe God has you here today for a specific purpose and plan. We'd love to be able to connect with you and see if there's a way that we can serve you and come alongside of you in your spiritual walk where you're at and see how we can serve you in that way. So I'm going to ask you to do something for me. On the screen behind me, there's this really big QR code. I'm going to ask you if you would uh, just take a an opportunity to scan that with your actual phone. Uh, and it will pull you up to a digital connection card. We'd love to be able to just connect with you. So if you'd be willing to fill that out. Also, we have a special gift for you. So if you are, like I said, a first-time guest, as soon as you walk out, you're going to see a uh, table area over there called the connection, uh, the Welcome Center. If you go by the Welcome Center, then one of our uh, guest services attendants would love to be able to give you a gift just as a way of saying thank you for making time to worship with us this morning. I'm going to ask the ushers to come forward. We're going to go ahead and worship the Lord through giving to receive our offering this morning. Um, that's one of the ways in which we worship. And so as, as important as all these other things are that we do, we also worship the Lord through giving. Uh, this is something that, you know, the reality is is that it costs money in ways to do ministry on earth, to be able to have a building like this, to have lights, but to also then fund ministry and to do things of that nature. I thank you so much for your gracious giving. I know many of you think about end-of-year gifts of how you potentially can serve the church in that way as well. And I want to thank you because I know many of you give sacrificially, but we believe God's our provider. God's the God who owns a cattle on a thousand hills, right? And so we believe for him individually and for our church as well. So I'm going to pray over the offering, and then Keating's going to give us a few announcements. So, Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to worship through giving. We thank you that you are the God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills, Lord. And I pray that you would take this offering, that you would cause it to multiply for the furtherance of your kingdom, that we may be good stewards to utilize it well here at Firewheel to be able to minister in this area that you have called us to. Thank you, God, that you are so good to us. And, Lord, we want to give back to you just a small portion of what you so freely bestow upon us to utilize this as a tool for your glory that you may be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, thank you, Adrian. Uh, first and foremost, coming up next weekend, we have the FWF Winter Golf Tournament at Waterview over in Rowlett. Today is the last day to sign up, which you can do so online. Uh, the cost is $80, and once again, today is the last day to sign up. And if you need any more incentive, you will be able to shoot a golf ball out of an AR-15 on one of the holes. So it's really fun for all ages. Uh, moving forward, on December 17th, the Women's Ministry is having their Love Rocks Holiday Brunch. Once again, the sign-up is online, and that is December 17th at 10 a.m. Moving forward, Christmas Eve, we will be having service at 1 p.m. 1 p.m., not 5, but 1 p.m. Then the following day, which is Christmas Day, we will have a service at 9.30 all right, so 1 p.m. on Christmas Eve, then 9.30 on Christmas Day. Once again, all of this information can be found on our lovely website. Uh, Aaron Bender did a tremendous job on it. Let's give Aaron Bender a hand. And fun fact, Aaron Bender isn't actually in here. She's volunteering over in children's ministry. So if you want to be like Aaron Bender, volunteer in children's ministry. So, all right, that's all I have for you. Thanks, y'all. Guys, if you'll go ahead and stand, we'll say our benediction and get you dismissed out of here.
So next week we'll continue on in our series and look at some more characters and excited about that. But let me go on and just pray this blessing over you as you depart today. So may the Lord go before you to light the path and give you direction. May he go behind you to guide your steps. May he go beside you to keep you from stumbling. May he go above you to protect you. And may he go within you to give you the power of the Holy Spirit. And may our Father in heaven always grant you character that is greater than your gifts and humility that is greater than your influence. God bless you guys. We love you all so much. You are dismissed. We'll see you next week. Choir, choir practice, choir practice, choir practice right after church. Choir practice.